We all have a creative part of our brain, whether we use it or not, for generating new ideas, problem solving, and just viewing ourselves in this world. I am Ricky McGeckron, an artist living in Chicago, and I am eager to know and share with you all how people of a creative leaning have brought this way of thinking to the forefront and how it has shifted outcomes. Joseph Adeo is a professional astrologer who consults, teaches, and lectures in Manhattan. He is also a friend who I met in Provincetown, Massachusetts in 2010. We speak about a lot of topics in the hour, coming out, Joan Crawford, Rock Hudson, and of course, astrology. My conversation with astrologer Joseph Adeo. You and I met 10 years ago in Provincetown, Massachusetts. I faded summer. That was a magical summer. Yeah, and I remember um, you and I were kind of traveled in the same social circles. Uh, yes. And I remember we spent the day, just you and I, at the P-Town Inn pool, um, hanging yes. out. And I'll never forget that. So I'm sure that you had shared all of this information because I'm always asking people. I, I'm time. sure I've shared it. My, my Gemini moon must have shared it with you at least twice. Um, I repeat things often. So yes, I, uh, and, and I forget things just as often. So. So Provincetown um, is, you know, for people that are listening that aren't familiar with it, you know, Provincetown is in Massachusetts. It's at the tippy tip. Um, you know, Massachusetts has like that hook and it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And as you drive down that hook, it becomes less and less populated until it's just sand dunes. And then suddenly when you get to the very tip, boom, Provincetown. Um, so what do you, what, so how would you describe Pro Provincetown? Oh, it's a magical fantasy place at the end of the world where outcasts and creative people go, uh, people who feel like they're on the fringe of society, people who have high creativity who aren't accepted, who go there to explore, who go there to be welcome, who go there to be accepted. Uh, it's a magical place. The lighting is kind of bizarre. You can escape into a fantasy world. You can escape into a fantasy world of high creativity and community, or you can escape into a fantasy world that spirals you into the depths of depression. Our Provincetown is highly sensitized. Whatever mood you're in, Provincetown will um, heighten. So you have this magical kind of energy, but if you're in a depressed mood, you, it will make you also spiral down. It's a quite a unique place and a, a community, 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 a safe haven. It's a little different now, but that's how my impression of Provincetown from when I first went and from the history books and from reading it, uh, Eugene O'Neill and Tennessee Williams and all these great writers used to go there. It was a haven for creative people. Uh, LGBTQ LMNOP is the um, community right now, but back in the day, you know, it was a community, but now it's encompassing everything. Uh, it's a little different now, but uh, yep. it's still a place uh, of acceptance. Yeah. Uh, you know, my experience in P-Town, um, you know, I was a visitor for the, the years. I would go for a week on vacation where it was party, party, party. And then starting in the summer of 2009, I got a place there. So I was not only was I there on weekends, but um, a week before my first place started, um, we our work situation changed. So I was now working from home. So I basically moved down there. And I will tell you that being there changed my brain. Like it rewired me. And I don't think that I would have 
um, pursued this creative life as an artist that I'm doing now if that had not happened. Because when I was living in Boston and working like a corporate job, your mind is just wired in a way that's all, it's just different. And when you go there, I was meeting people that were um, much looser, much freer, um, much more open to new ideas. Uh, the other thing that was extremely interesting is no one talked about their jobs. No one no. talked about what they did for a living. No. <laughs> I hung out with our with Greg and Jeff, and I hung out with them every day at the summer for an entire summer. And then at the end of the summer, they invited me to a party in Boston, and I found out that they were a doctor and a nurse. And I'm like, I cannot believe that we spent that much time together and it never even came up what we do for a living. And in the normal world, that's the first thing you ask when you meet someone. Oh, what do you do for a Rick, living? You hit, you hit the nail on the head. That's a, a wonderful uh, definition of Provincetown. I, I, what I loved about it, because 10 years ago was my, uh, not my first time there, but the time that changed my life. And you did nobody asked you what you did. You, you were accepted for who you are. And that's what I loved. You had friends, and when you find out what your friends do eventually, because eventually you do, you hang out with them for months and months and then years, and you, so you get to know everybody. You, 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 there's all, there was all, everybody was from a different socioeconomic background, but nobody, and I love the fact that people just liked me for me. Yeah. Because of being an astrologer, a lot of people were like, oh, were like that's a little crazy. And that, that, you know, people don't like that but they loved me. So I felt loved and accepted and it didn't matter to me what they thought about my job. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about your job a little bit. Um, I know you're an astrologer, which um, I think is, it, well, I think it's extremely interesting that you are pursuing something that is, at least in my view, very much out of the ordinary. I mean, you're the only astrologer I know. Can you tell me about how that started? Like how you got uh, I'm going to use the word turned on to astrology, but uh, you know, that's obviously not the word. So you, you tell me the word, how did it happen? How did your brain get activated around this? I was always in the arts. Um, I went to school. I always wanted to be an actor and I went to, I, I studied acting I, since I was a kid and I movies and, and fantasy and the imagination. I was very right brain oriented. Uh, and so I was an actor in the 80s, and then I became an opera singer. I, I segued into opera, and I was an opera singer for 20 years. And, but all during that time, and throughout the 1990s, I was always very interested in uh, going to channelers, and interested in spiritual stuff, and going to expos, and seeing what people had to say. And I, I got a little lured into that Buddhist community for a while, uh, although I found them a little, I, I didn't stay with them too long. But I always thought there was something, astrology wasn't on the, for the first 40 years of my life, astrology wasn't really a big thing, but I, I was always exploring uh, spiritual things, through meditation, through yoga, through um, you know, as I said, some of the Buddhist things, I, I did the Course of Miracles, I did the Course of Miracles. I was kind of always dabbling and experimenting. Why were you, uh, why did you start doing that? And like what age, like uh, approximately what age did you start exploring um, that? Like in my 20s, in my 20s, after I graduated school, after I went to a very artsy school, I went to a very progressive school. I came from a very conservative Republican family of alpha males. 
uh, and I just wasn't like that. But were you? My, were you? Um, did you grow up in a religious household? No, oh. my mother hated religion. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, Italian Catholic family, in terms of uh, ethnicity, in terms of the way the mind was formed, and I'm sure the Italian Catholic mindset in terms of religion was there, but not in a formal way. My mother loathed the church. She thought the church was two-faced. She hated the women in the church. And my father took us to church when we were kids. We were four boys. But then after about eight years old, he didn't care about the church either. So we didn't, no, not religious at all. So religion and spirituality was not part of your life at all? At all? No, no, no. My parents were hardworking uh, from immigrant family. Uh, my, my grandparents were Italian immigrants and uh, my parents were this next generation and everything was about work, get ahead, get an education, work hard, make money. It was that, I came from that kind of mentality. Yeah, yeah. But, I, but they never, to their credit, my parents never um, dissuaded me from going into the arts. They, they just kept saying, oh, you should, you should uh, have something to fall back on. You know, you're not going to make any money in that. You're not going right. to do, but they never, uh, for all their faults in other ways, they were very supportive of what I wanted to do. And they gave me a wonderful education and they let me pick the college I wanted to. And so when I was went to acting and did all this, they just let me do whatever I wanted to do. You know, right. they didn't uh, stop me. So I'm trying to figure out where like this interest in need, not that it's abnormal or, uh, you know, most people have this interest in spirituality or, you know, at some point, um, is there anything in particular that sort of initiated that exploration or was it just part of yes. you gro growing as a person? In the nineties, I think I missed the first part of your question, but I'll, I, I think I know what you were asking. Um, I uh, did this rebirthing class. I, I, <laughs> I was trying all these things and there was a woman teaching a rebirthing class and I can't even remember what, rebirthing was something about uh, taking you back into your mother's womb and uh, feeling like you're there and, and, and whatever emotions came out. It was a form of psychotherapy. And at that point, I was starting to read astrology books. And I asked this woman, I liked her very much. And I said, do you know a good astrology teacher? I, I think I, that's what my next thing I want. And she said, yes, you must study with John Marcusella. And I said, okay, he's the best. So I, and I was an eternal student. I loved studying. To this day, I could study, study, study. I could be in college till the day I die. As long as I didn't work a day in my life, I'd much rather study. So I said, oh, good, a class. So I called him up and he told me about classes. He was the president of the New York chapter of NCGR, which is the National Council for Geocosmic Research, which is a very prominent astrological organization. And he told me about classes were starting. And I remember I had a very eclectic schedule because I was an opera singer and I was an actor and I, all the classes were at night. And I said, aren't there any day classes? And he said, no, most people teach at night. So I started studying with him. And this was in the late 90s. And um, he was a great teacher. And the more I studied with him, the more I loved it. I just thought it was fascinating. And astrology became this whole thing of like psychology. He was a very psychological astrologer. And it was all about, it was like the original psychology for thousands of years. And it, and it wasn't this woo-hoo. It had a science to it. It had a logic to it. It had a, math, it had a lot of math to it. Um, and there was a very, it was like the, it was like a melding of the left brain and the right brain, because you do have to do a lot of homework and preparation and math. And, 
And then there's a right brain element to astrology. That's the interpretation, the spiritual side, because, you know, why do the planets mean this? It sounds so silly, but they do. And when they, and they, when they move in certain mathematical configurations, and he, he opened up this whole world to me as great teachers do. You know, he made me interested in it. He made it exciting. He made it entertainment. And he, and he made it simple as well as complicated because when the, the minute you start studying astrology, you realize, oh my God, it's not just this little column in a newspaper. Right. It right. takes years and years of studying and synthesizing all this information to be able to weave patterns together and to look at the past and the present in order to see what the future might bring because it's very actually logical astrology once you know the language, just like learning a foreign language. So he opened up this whole world to me. And, I, and I'm, a, I'm a voracious student, I'm a very good student. So I, was, I took class after class, I studied, and he really liked me. And he said, you could be great astrologer if you wanted to. And that's all I needed to hear. That's all I needed to hear. I remember when I became an actor, when I became an opera singer, I needed a great teacher. All I needed was a teacher to tell me I was talented and I could do it and I jumped. And he was that. And I think that's what teachers are so important because yeah. as an actor, as an opera singer, as an astrologer, that I had a great teacher who just pushed me and they promoted me and they helped me. So uh, then he started mentoring me and I took private lessons with him. And then I got my certification because there's you can go through the certification process. Not that being a certified astrologer makes you a great astrologer, but it was important for me because I like certification because I like testing and I like to having to study books and take tests and quiz <laughs> and get approved and get us. And so to me, it meant a lot that I got a certification to be an astrologer, even though it does not necessarily mean you're a great astrologer. Was it something where you knew I want to be the best, I want to do this? Or was it more like, let's see what happens next. Let's see what unfolds. And it sort of unfolded in a positive way. Or were let's you more goal oriented? No, I'm, I'm not that goal oriented. Uh, let's see what happens. I just always, I never have a plan. Never. Uh, let's just see what happens. I segued from acting to uh, singing to astrology and in the interim with the astrology as I was segueing I just said let's see what happens and uh, I met the right people I, I kind of it was almost like a, a, the wheel of fortune in the tarot yeah. was, spin the wheel see what happens yeah and I just got pushed in the right directions so in 20 years you have obviously things are unfolding in a way that are making you want to continue how would you describe your experience with astrology that's making you feel that this is where you should be, that it is positive, that you want to, you know, that you have wanted to continue to take the next step in a way that maybe other things didn't feel. I make money at it. I'm independent. I'm free. I don't have a boss. I can do whatever I want. I can make my own schedule. I don't have to listen to anyone, anyone but myself. I can, I can work at three in the morning. I can work at nine in the morning. I can take two weeks off. My whole business is word of mouth. Uh, so from a practical level, I love the freedom. I love the freedom. From a spiritual level, from a, it's creative. It's, I help people. It's like being a therapist. Uh, I get great satisfaction out of people telling me that I've changed their lives. I get great satisfaction out of having psychological discussions with people about their potential and what they can achieve. I feel like an artist. I feel like a teacher. I feel like a performer. There's a part of it that brings in opera and the theater because I teach classes. 
and I get to impart my knowledge and my passion for this to other people and I see them coming alive. It's like an actor in a performance and you watch those students and you watch those, they, they respond to what you're saying and the passion. And it's, I, I'm not counting numbers all day. I'm doing something that's very creative. I think anything you can do is creative. I think you could be a creative accountant. So I don't want to uh, belittle any other professions. But um, I never, I always wanted to stay in a field that made me, uh, where I got rewarded financially and spiritually from the feedback I got from people. And this is the first time it happened. That right. all of a sudden, uh, the two of them combined. The two right. of them combined. Um, and I do like giving people some kind of meaning and explanation. You know, astrology is like a religion. If, uh, religion is just something that offers explanations to people of why we're living here on earth. You know, that's what religion's about. People want meaning in life and they want, they want an explanation of why we're here. And astrology is that. I had a friend who said to me, there was a, she said to me, and it was a brilliant, she said, astrology is the psychology of geometry. And that's exactly what it is. There's all these geometric patterns happening in the sky and they, and they set things, they make things, um, they make you react in certain ways. And I just like pointing out things to people. So people don't, people come to me and they think they're, they know they're not crazy when I kind of support what they're going through. Something that you said to me um, reminded me of some conversations that I've had with personal trainers. I've spoken with two personal trainers and they have experiences where their the work that they're doing with their clients actually transforms their clients' lives. And that's something that you had mentioned as an, as an aspect to what you do is that it makes it so fulfilling in a spiritual way is that the work that you're doing with your clients sometimes can transform their lives. So right. I just want to know a little bit about, can you just talk to me about that? Cause that's, that sounds really interesting and awesome. Well, it's very personal. It's because you, you're going to have this deep, intimate conversation with somebody it's like being in a therapist's office. And when you're able to, when they come to you with a whole, most people come to see an astrologer when they're not usually feeling that good. They really come when things are great. And they want to know how long is this going to last? And why is this happening now? And when you can give, when you can give them very practical kinds of advice of, of certain types of behavioral patterns that are set up in their chart, uh, set up in their life at birth, and why they react certain ways in certain instances, and why things are being triggered now, and when you can give them an idea of how long something's gonna last, whether it's a difficult situation, whether it's a pleasurable situation, whether uh, this is not a good time, of, this year is not a good year to open a business or next year is a better year for the potential to, for love. When you can, and when you kind of reinforce what they're going through and that there's um, a meaning to it and there's a pattern to it, it makes this huge sigh of relief on the side of the client. Like they're not crazy. Like there's a time, there's a season for everything. There's a reason why it's unfolding now. This is the time of my life where I have to learn this lesson. This is the time of my life where I have to learn that lesson. This is a time of my life where for the next two years I might experience great joy that's unfettered. And when you can put things in that kind of perspective for people, because everybody goes through these things, some people, you know, have more, uh, more 
difficult challenges than other. When you put it in perspective for people, they really love that there's some kind of meaning to the universe, that there's some kind of meaning to their life. And that that's, um, and you can help them get through it by suggesting ways that their personality types would deal with a situation like this. Or how did you deal with this situation seven years ago? Because a lot of astrology is about, you know, seven years ago, a similar type of energy was around. How did you deal with it then? Mm. Because now you're seven years older, you're going to have the same lesson to learn but you're going to evolve with it in a different way. And there are different circumstances that will, um, there are different energies here that might help you learn, deal with it now. It gives me great satisfaction to just guide them through that. And uh, it's, it's like this, I'm sure if you talk to a, a psychotherapist or any kind of therapist, they feel the same way. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's great when the client, you see them you see them grow you see them understand as you see them understand you see them accept themselves and you see them they're not they don't they don't become so tuned into these faded things that are going to happen like oh just because this person left me i'm going to die or just because i lost this job no there's much more deeper kinds of reasons for things to happen like literally the worst thing that could happen when doing a broadcast <laughs> is a fucking jackhammer outside the window. You've got to be kidding me. It's an Aquarius full moon. Expect the unexpected. It's the hard All right. hurricane came. Uh, Rick, Rick, it's, it's, uh, I, I don't mind if we 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 do this another time. That's fine. Don't, it's not going to be. A no, I just, I like how things are going, but, um, I guess it's not meant to be then. I mean, literally my house is shaking. <laughs> you look great, Rick. You haven't aged a bit. And you, okay. I love all your I love all your cooking. Oh, I'm starting a new um I'm starting All your a, cooking is so exciting. Well, I'm starting a new cooking blog, a whole new platform. If I remember correctly, you have a Cancer moon, don't you? You have the I moon in what, Cancer. What I remember because I did a little reading for you, I remember yeah. many years ago. I think you have the Cancer moon and and the, the moon in cancer is a sign that has a lot to do with cooking and oh. home and bonding and nurturing and be and hunkering down and being in the womb like and the moon is how you would relate the moon has a lot to do with sensitivities and feelings and and needs and that cancer moon would be like a big mommy i have these mommy tendencies of wanting to cook and nurture and to uh, make people feel comfortable and make people feel welcome and I, I would, I, I'm almost positive you have a cancer moon. Okay. Um, well, then that makes totally sense. Yeah. So I'm actually starting a whole new because I get a lot of feedback on my cooking stuff. I, I get a lot of feedback. So I'm actually starting a new um, cooking channel. So. Um, That's fantastic. So, so it's actually a whole program. So it's called Buckman Street Kitchen, and it's all about helping people uh, cook at home and not eat out. And cook from scratch and the foundation of the whole thing is i tell you what you need to keep in your house at all times and if you have these things i'm telling you because you have a cancer moon this is going to be great all right well be great at this oh well thank you so i just did the first um i did recordings because it's going to be on youtube and everything i did some recordings yesterday um for the first time so i'm starting to create content so look What's for your sun sign. Are you an Aquarius? I'm an Aquarian, February 10th, 1968. You're an Aquarian with a Cancer moon. How interesting. Nice. 
Okay. You'll, you'll help people see the bigger picture as an Aquarius to, to cook in their own home and, and take care of themselves personally. That's a lovely combination. All right. So I, I'm going to have you back. I think I may be doing a podcast for my cooking show called Buckman Street Kitchen. So I'll have you back on that and we can specifically talk about how that relates to my cooking. My God, you should see. And my, I come from a baker's, fa baker's family, bread baking family. Adeo Bakers up in the Bronx. Look them up. They're a big bakery. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, no, my family, I, my, my brother took over the family business, Italian Bread Bakery. That's the family business. Everybody thought I would go into it. I didn't want to go into the family business. So. Right. Let's, I want to talk about Joan Crawford, though, because I know that you're a Joan Crawford fan. Um, we obviously, when we spent that day at the P-Town Inn, which, by the way, I'm working on a painting right now on the P-Town Inn which is interesting that we're having this conversation. That's where like our friendship blossomed. Um, I'm sure that you talked about your passion for Joan Crawford. Um, I have never been a, a huge fan in that I just have never seen any of her products uh, other than I saw Mommy Dearest, which doesn't count. Um, and I think I may have seen Mildred Pierce. So I have to tell you what I discovered. So I discovered Joan Crawford, and this is what turned me on to Joan Crawford. Joan Crawford wrote an, she wrote two autobiographies. The second oh. one was called, um, I think it's called My Life. And my it's Way all, of Life. My Way of Life. And she wrote it after her Pepsi husband died and she was living in the downsized apartment in New York. She did an audiobook that she reads. <laughs> so I found this and I thought it was incredible. And I was, I use it all the time when I need to fall asleep. I put on Joan Crawford talking about my life and it, it is so soothing. It puts me to sleep. She has a beautiful but speaking voice. She's a great speaker. <laughs> she has a great voice. I am, I, I have to tell you, I totally am similar to her, the way her brain works. She's like a project manager. She does not necessarily have a creative brain. Everything about her. Now, obviously oh. an autobiography isn't necessarily about truth but it certainly speaks to what she thinks is important, you know, and it's not the normal stuff. It's all about planning and thinking ahead all about planning. and all about planning your house, planning your meals, planning your career, planning your relationships. It was fascinating. It it's was interesting fascinating. that you say that she doesn't have, I don't know if you, did you say creative mind? It's interesting. You yeah. said she's very left brain. Yeah. She's very, you would think because she was this actress and everything, she would have this kind of uh, a little more of a, um, devil may care attitude about things but no she should have fucking run a she should have been the ceo of a corporation she should have run i remember people reading about people who met her and people in hollywood uh people from broadway would come to hollywood and they would like be feel like they were slumming and they said but joan crawford when i met her she should have been running the studio it's not, there was something robotic about her there was something um i mean i hate to use ro robotic sounds terrible because i actually love her but uh uh, organized, anal retentive, yeah. uh, 24 hour seven planning, you know, OCD, you know, which, you know, fits in with a lot of the image of her, especially the mommy dearest image of, you know, the controlling, but yes, very, very left brain structured, analytical, um, to the, to an, kind of almost a scary degree, yeah. which propelled her ambition too. Uh, you know, absolutely. And, um, so since I started listening to that, so then I started learning more about her and I listened and I, I listened to an audiobook of her first autobiography, which was written like mid career. 
Um, it was, well, yeah, it was, autobiography was written in, around the time of whatever happened to baby Jane in 1961. That's called the lonely life. Okay. So that was written around. The, no, you know, that's, she, that's Betty Davis. Uh, no, the lonely no, life sorry, is Betty Yes, Davis. you're right. It's called, uh, you're right. You're right. I'm confusing the two. Uh, a portrait of Joan. It's called a portrait of Joan. Betty, da Betty Davis and Joan Crawford wrote an autobiography around the same time about baby Jane. Betty's was called the lonely life. You're right. And Joan's was called a portrait of Joan. And that, that was like the early 60s. And then My Way of Life was written in 1970, around that time. But, so the thing that was interesting, is, so then I started reading, I read that other autobiography. Then I started reading interviews about her and seeing interviews. And then I started watching her movies. And <laughs> she, and just learning more about her. And, and then really understanding how she came from absolutely nothing. Nothing. And nothing. she... It's, and that is how she became what she was. I mean, she's the epitome of the American dream. She's yes. the epitome of the American. She's one of the most fascinating creatures of the 20th century. Came from nothing, poverty, and, and, the, and the American dream was you can go after whatever you want and achieve it. And that's what she did I, from humble, humble beginnings and fighting her way to the top. And being she's a woman. A prime example of somebody who, you know, they say the more entitled you are, if you come from money and family, sometimes you don't push yourself to do things. She came from nothing, so it, it kind of made this tiger, it made her want to achieve more. And sometimes when you're knocked down in life, you get back up and you have a greater desire to achieve. And that's exactly what she's, she's the living example of the American yeah. dream. Yeah. And, and, another, and another aspect to her is that she is, she's my grandmother's age. Like I remember going to visit my grandmother and she was like a little old lady who, you know, both my grandmothers, who they had no power, they had no influence. They were at the whim of the, my grandfathers, and uh, you know, so I—that was my idea of what women were like of her generation, and she was their age. So that's crazy yeah. that she had a career, and it's fascinating. Well, then you know, living—you know—the power of the independence of a woman, the power of a woman, and dealing with uh, you know making her way in the world. I mean. There's a lot to admire there. Uh, it's it's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. She's my grandmother's age. Yes, exactly. And uh, what they what those women had to go through in that world at that time, it's pretty amazing what they achieved. It's pretty amazing. Um, in it really is. Do you have any opinion on um, her daughter Christina and her in terms of um, whether not whether it's true or not. I don't know. What is your opinion on all of that? Um, you know, Joan Crawford's a very flawed woman. I mean, complex, complicated woman, which is what makes her so. Um, I have, Chris, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of truth to what Christina says. I'm sure she was not the greatest mother. I'm sure she did abuse them. You know, there are four children in that family, and two of the children have great stories, and two of the children have bad stories. That's not unusual. That's not unusual. Uh, that the abuse happened, I don't doubt. The, the, my views about Christina, though, other than that, you know, child abuse is horrible. I'm sure she had a horrible upbringing in many respects. But Christina never seems to have anything. She t she capitalizes a lot on that, and then you know once once the whole thing with the wire hangers became camp, she would capitalize that. And she would, I, I there's something about Christina that I, it doesn't kind of ring true all the time. Uh, 
and I don't, you know, and you're also see, you know, un unfortunately, that movie and that book became just so um, like a Joan Crawford movie. It became so melodramatic. Um, but Christina just seems to have such a hatred. To, she very rarely says anything positive about the mother. And yet she always says she was looking to find love. There's no forgiveness there. It's it's interesting uh, for somebody who's uh, you know approaching eighty. I think Christina's you know Christina's born in 1939, so you know uh, she's approaching eighty years old. There's no empathy for the mother, and no understanding, and no um, uh, ref there's less. There doesn't seem to be this reflective part of Christina about the whole situation. Uh, you know, but I don't. I don't hate, I, the, the thing about mom, when I was, I have two versions, you know, when I was younger, I thought the mommy dearest thing was so appalling and it, it smirched her reputation, but in a way it's, it made people pay attention to Joan and research her and see where she came from. You know, it's a very sad story. It's a story of, of a woman who repeats the patterns of her, her own mother. You know, you know, Joan Crawford just came from an abused household and then she uh, perpetrated the abuse again on her own children. And that's rather sad. Yeah. It's rather yeah. sad uh, that, you know, this woman who achieved so much couldn't, um, you know, Christina makes it sound like Joan Crawford wanted children just for publicity. That's not true. That's not true. You know, uh, yeah. it's, and, and, and she's telling the book through a child's lens too. So I think, you know, you, you're getting the child, a child is gonna, listen, my, my, my mother's still alive, so I want to be very careful about what I say here. I remember when I watched the movie version of Mommy Dearest. Now, my mother didn't physically abuse me. I was never beaten. But there were, when I watched Faye Dunaway as Joan Crawford, and I watched certain scenes in that movie, I sat there saying, well, my mother was like that. Right. <laughs> My mother would go fly into fits of rage. Yeah, I don't think that's uncommon back then. Though. It's not uncommon. So there's a lot of things taken out of proportion. Like, you know, like, I know, you know, my image of women, you know, I don't want to sound misogynistic here, but I come from a whole line of strong, independent, fierce women that had tempers, that right. doled out the punishment, that wore the pants in the sense of they took care of the house and they were they were scary and they cursed and they fought and they hit and they were like military men and uh and and i grew uh, those are the kinds of women and perhaps uh, i mean if you psychoanalyze me i've psychoanalyzed myself a lot that's why i love the actresses like joan crawford and betty davis and barbara stamick and those strong women on the screen they're fun to watch but when you have women like that in your real life, you know, everybody talks about abusive men, abusive men, and yeah, there are lots of abusive men, God knows. But you know, everyone's, I always have been taught, I've always been told, oh, if women were, were ruled the world, if women did this, if women, it'd be much kinder, much sweeter. That's not my view, that's not, the, those are not the kinds of women I was raised by. Yeah, that's my experience too. I mean, in my family, my mom wore the pants in the family. My, my dad was not an alpha male and my mom was an alpha female. So, um, so that's sort of, and I think that's why I have an interest in similar types char 
characters and seeing it on screen. And I can definitely relate to that because that was, that was the dynamic in my family. When I hear about like the overbearing abusive dad, I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't like, know what that you're is, talking about. That is completely foreign to me. I mean, because, my dad had his own issues, but not that. Yeah. yeah. My dad, my mom was the one that was abusing my dad. Um, and my dad just sat there and never said anything. And so it's, yeah, I can relate to that. So, so, but, and yet I had great empathy for my mother and her plight. And I think, Joan, because I understood, I think I instinctively understood that women were put in a very tough position, especially women like my mother and Joan Crawford. They're, they're creative. They want to have a career. They want to be very yang. They want to be, they want to express their masculine side. But by that, I mean their yang side. They want to have, go out in the world. They want to meet people. They want to have a home. They want to have a job. They want to, they want to have all those options in life that men have. And when a woman like that, who's so creative and so powerful, so independent, is forced to like raise a family. And, and, and then, you know, my father did tell my mother, no, you can't work. You know, my father had a, his own alpha side there too. And then they, they get frustrated. So then it comes out in this rage because it has nowhere to express itself. And, uh, and so as a little boy, I remember, and I could explain this astrologically from my point of view, but I don't want to get into psychological, astrologically analyzing me right now. But as a little boy, I remember, I thought my mother was crazy, but I loved her very much. And I understood her, even though every time she and my father had a fight, I thought she was wrong because he would go to try to apologize and she wouldn't... And yet I sided with her. I can't even explain this to this day as a little boy. I had this great empathy for her because I understood the frustration, even though her expression of her frustration was so over the top. And um, I don't know if I'm making any sense here. It's that, it's that weird thing where uh, I loved her and I felt sorry for her and I, but I thought she was crazy at the same time. <laughs> and I think that's the explanation of the, the way women are forced to be put in certain positions. But men are forced to be put in certain positions too. Not every man wants to be an alpha male and go out and make a living and support a family. And um, I certainly don't. Yeah, I know a I lot think of men who don't want to be put in that position and they're forced to and then they become monsters because of that. Yeah. And I think this is a lot of, I think this relates to a lot, and this is another whole larger topic about, uh, which I, we probably don't want to get into, about like traditional American roles in terms of everything, in terms of men, men's roles, female roles. And then we talk about the, um, it kind of relates to me, um, like um, not so much sexuality, but like now we're talking about gender identity, which right. it's kind of, it's kind of the same thing. It's like we, uh, women should, women, females should be this, males should be this. And like, that is what is considered excellence. That is what is going to get you to be successful, et cetera, et cetera. But not everybody fits into that. And in the same way in, um, you know, gender, like I'm, I'm cisgendered, like I feel like I'm male, but I can see how if you don't feel that way, like how does that work? Like, right. how do and I as an in? astrologer, I love that I can help people see what their strong points are and their options. 
How, where in your life are you more yang and where in your life are you more yin? Where's the balance of energy and where should your priorities be? And where are your strengths? And where are you? Astrology is explaining where your strengths are, where your weak points are. How do you, how do you balance the weak points? How, how, how does the struggle in the chart, a chart will indicate where somebody has a, a certain amount of talent and then where they're going to have struggle. Well, you need struggle and talent in combination to make somebody successful because without struggle, you don't achieve anything. And if you're all about talent and good luck, well, you become lazy. And so a good astrologer is supposed in a good consultation as a consulting astrologer, because I'm a consulting astrologer, I'm supposed to point those things out to people and, 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 and show them like, these are where you're, this is where you will have uh, more success if you push yourself a little bit, you know, you know, yeah. and you know, there's lots of different fields of astrology. There's the research astrologer who will explain why certain things happen in certain epochs of history. And they're, they're doing lots of research analysis, right? I'm, I'm not geared that way. That's, that's sort of like the geek or the nerd or somebody who doesn't like to socialize with anybody and spends 24 hours a day, seven days a week doing research. And then they come up with why things happen. That, that, that's a whole other school of astrology that's really beautiful. But this consulting astrologer is to unleash, is supposed to look at a chart and help unleash the person's potential and for growth and where things are going. And, you know, uh, and I think from a little boy, that's what I real, you know, you, you realize, uh, yes, I'm a cisgendered man. I'm very proud. And astrology is very good at explaining this kind of stuff. I'm very proud to be a cisgendered man. I like my masculinity. I like my swagger. I like going out there. But underneath, underneath, I'm a very feminine kind of um, yin type of guy. And I think I love that dichotomy that I present. I love that dichotomy, that split point of view of being sort of like this daddy figure. But I'm really much more... I don't like using the word feminine because that's such a bad, but, but fe yin, yin energy, yin is, that doesn't have all the connotations of masculine and feminine, but I'm very yin on the inside. I'm very more, more that kind of thing, which is why I think I understood my mother so well. <laughs> right. So do you think, how do you think your personality type would have worked out in the fifties in the, in the U S? That's a great question. Um, Listen, I was very conditioned at an early age to tuck it in, they say. You know, you know the expression for gay men? When I came out as a gay man, I came out right away. It was very easy. But because I wanted to be, I was very lucky. It was very easy. I came out in the late 70s, and all my young friends say, oh, my God, it must have been so hard. I go, no, I, I went to a very progressive school. My parents dealt with it fairly well for being Republican. Uh, anyway. The, to answer your question, how would have I dealt with it in the 50s? I would how would you have been received? I would have been received fine because I would have done the Rock Hudson thing. Hmm. I would have done the things that Rock Hudson did. All those gay men who made sure that they acted in a hyper-masculine way and could tuck it in. There was a, you know, in the theater world, there was an expression, tuck it in. You don't want to be on stage and have anybody read you as gay. Because, not because they would, the reasoning was, at least the way I interpreted it, it wasn't because you were ashamed of being gay. I was never ashamed, but because, and rightfully so, rightfully so, 95% of the literature is geared towards straight people, and the man is supposed to be able to make love to the woman. And so when you're, when you're on stage, you want the audience to believe 
that you're the you you're making love to that woman and that woman is falling in love with you and there's there's a certain i i know i'm a lot of people are going to disagree with me and i'm a six-year-old man so i'm coming from a, a maybe in a little archaic way here but i always bought into that where i didn't like when people could guess my sexuality now i could camp it up just as good as anybody else and i don't care about that but when i'm on stage i want the men and the women in the audience to, to believe what i'm playing so in the 50s i there would have been the extra thing of being ostracized for being gay losing your career for being gay so what i would have done is what i did in the theater world is just go to the gym work on that, that hyper masculine thing making sure my speaking voice was a certain tonality so that i would fit in and not get caught i would have played that game i'm sure that's what i would have done. yeah so talking so about scare me and, and i wouldn't have gotten married though because right. I'm so gay and I, I don't think, you're talking about who Joe Adeo is, from who I am today, I would have uh, not gotten married because I couldn't have done that, but I would have played the game and right. just met women and dated them, but not gotten married. So speaking of Rock Hudson and, um, you know, the, you know, being closeted, um, do you think that, I think a lot of people look at that as, oh, that must have been awful being closeted. I don't necessarily think so. Like, I, I don't honest, think so either. I don't think so. I think that he was, I don't know anything about him, but I don't necessarily think that that was awful. I think that he I probably- I hate when people, people use the probably, modern sensibility. Right. I hate when modern people say, oh, what a tragic life, Rock Hudson, tragedy, tragedy. I go, no, no. I'm sure if you spoke to Rock Hudson in the 40s, 50s, and he, he was very happy. And yes, he had to do certain things that from our modern sensibility, my God. But um, he, no, I think he did what he had to do to be successful. Yeah, I agree with you. I I'm agree sure with you. He, I, I'm sure there were sad moments. I'm sure, yes, could, would it have been nice if he could have had a relationship? But he, I'm sure he, if we had brought Rock Hudson back to life, I think he would laugh at what people, how people talk about him. <laughs> I think you're probably right. I think he probably uh, had a, a great life. Like I think that he had, um, he probably had a lot of attention from people that really, you know, cause he was the only gay actor, um, you know, even though he was closeted. So he probably you know who had, had the sad lives in those time periods, gay men who came from poor families in the Midwest or, or anywhere who had no options. Right. We had no options. Right. Hudson had a lot of options. I agree. I, you know, I can't feel sorry for a man of his stature in that respect. And I don't think he feels, but if you're a guy, you know, in who lived in Cheyenne, Wyoming in the fifties and had no role models and you came from a family and you didn't know where, those are the people that I would, my heart goes out to much more. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I recently went to this place called Allerton Park which is, um, it's like this estate and it has, it's just this place out by Champaign, Illinois. And it was um, developed by this, obviously a gay man. Um, and I think he was born in the twenties or something, but he came from tons of money. So he maintained this estate and he lived his life with his, I think it was his secretary or something. And I, when I read this and they had their home in Hawaii and they were like the first gay couple. And there was something about that story I was envious of it because there's something about everything being out and everything is gay and it's just overwhelming and too much. It sounded like a really nice, simple life 
where they weren't being bombarded with all of this opinions and everyone talking about, you know. Well, it's the different, it's the same thing with P-Town. Years ago, listen, I think um, gay rights and transgender rights and queer rights, and I think it's beautiful. I think this is the way society should be going. So I think everything that's happening is fabulous. But the reason places like P-Town were so popular, because years ago, the gay community, the queer community, had to go far away to escape places where nobody else wanted to go. So you went to the edge of Massachusetts. The clubs you went to in New York were basements. They were dark and dingy. They were on the West Side Highway where the rats lived, where nobody else wanted to go. So you had these secret places that were secret. And when you went there, everybody welcomed you and loved you. And it was like a private club. And you felt like this incredible love from the community. Well, because everything has become much more equalized now, everybody knows about everything and every, you know, so you don't have that feeling of being part of a special group of people anymore. Um, and I know it's a, it's a, pola- it's a, it's an oxymoron, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's a conundrum. It's like, well, it's good and it's, it's, yeah. good. it's mostly yeah. good, but then we've also lost something too, because right. now, how my grandmother knows about what went on in clubs like the mind shit. I mean, I'm like, I don't really like, you know, right. some things right. I just want to be just part of the. I, I, I totally agree with you. When I came out, it was the summer of 1990. And this was probably the, you know, the end of all this. It was like a secret society in 1990. Yeah. Like it was, I felt special. Like, oh my God, I got the key to this amazing world where the music was different. That was clubs that nobody knew about. It was people were talking about topics um, that and it, people just spoke in different ways. Um, and it's, I feel like, not that I really go out or anything, but I feel like things are much more mainstream. I recently watched this movie called The Queen, which was like a, a, RuPa, a, a, a drag contest from 1967. Are you familiar with this movie? No, I don't it's know a, this movie. So you got to check it out, but it's a documentary and it was a, uh, a, um, I don't even know if they were, I guess it was drag queens was the term they used. Um, and it was, a, they, they, someone recorded the whole thing. It, it happened in New York City in 1967. And it was all um, gay men talking, um, you know, planning and, and the dialogue. And it was very interesting because it reminded me, the nature of the dialogue was, it reminded me of when I first came out. Because people, gay people it's hard to explain like what people talked about was different because now it's just everything is homogenized everything is homogenized when i came out i was lucky i was in the theater world and i was taken under the wing of older gay men you know there was this thing about older gay men taking younger gay men under their wing and ushering them in and nurturing them and yes yes some of it was sexual obviously but it wasn't really about the older gay men just wanting to sleep with the young guys and toss them off. It wasn't really that. It was more like, no, we want to, you know, we, we know that it's difficult to come out and uh, the, you could have a wonderful life being gay and we're going to show you what, a, what wonderful people are in the community and how creative the community is and how many smart, intelligent men there are. And yes, it's a very sexual community, but we're sexual creatures. So, and so it, it's that whole thing of passing it down. And, I, it still exists, but not to the same degree because of, of the way it's all so equalized, right? And 
uh, that's what I loved about those days. I, I have I had the greatest men uh, bring me out into the world. I was just so fortunate. I was so fortunate, so lucky, and um, that I really missed. That was beautiful. Nice. Well, I have and, one last question for you. Um, so I guess we did. We continued our conversation. We were planning on rescheduling. I know. I don't this. know what happened. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. We were planning on rescheduling this. I'm not sure if I'm going to edit that out or what. But if I edit it out, a jackhammer started outside of my window that was noisy and physically vibrating my dining room table while I'm recording this. So we were going to reschedule it. It went away. We continued. I do have one last question for you. Um, so is there anyone that you wish you could do a astrological reading? Um, is there like a fantasy person, dead or alive, that you would love to have that sort of interaction with? Oh, um, I really never thought about that. Uh, because all the people that I um, wanted to do, I do anyway. Like, uh, it's, I don't even really need to talk to them. I just analyze their charts. Uh, uh, but if I were to, I really don't, I mean, you know, the, you want to say maybe Joan, but I, I've analyzed Joan Crawford's chart so much. Uh, I almost, for famous people, to be quite honest with famous people or people in the public eye, I actually prefer to study them in private without asking them too many questions because they live so, uh, I, that wouldn't, I enjoy actually an anonymous, I enjoy the average daily person much more to do okay. that with. With famous people, I like studying them and writing articles on them. Famous people are wonderful to study as, with astrology as long as you have a time, a birth time. Without a birth time, you really can't do anything in, in any kind of uh, detail. What famous people are great for is because they live such public lives, you have timelines of events. Mm. And famous people live such uh extraordinary kinds of lives and, and 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 very active lives and a lot of things happen so they're the great kinds of charts to study and to teach with because they, they help the astrologer with their predictive technique on when things happen because of the way uh planetary alignments happen so uh but not in terms of interviewing them one wait one just popped into my mind you know who i would like to meryl streep meryl streep I would love to read for Meryl Streep. Okay. I would love to read for Meryl Streep because I know her chart so well and I think she'd be fun. <laughs> I think this, she'd be fun. Meryl Streep, that's the answer. And she's still alive. And she has a time birth chart and I know her chart very well. Yes, that's the really? answer. Okay, good answer. But I do prefer reading for the everyday lay person. First of all, it's harder, much more difficult. It tests you much more. It tests your metal because they don't leave, for generally, they don't lead as active a kind of life. And um, so you have to be much more subtle with the interpretation. Um, you know, uh, it's very hard to read for a person sometimes when you see a signature in the chart and by signature you see a pattern. And you do see this in charts. That's why you have to be very, you have to be very sensitive in how you read for people. I have this, so I don't mind talking about it. A difficult relationship chart. There, there are things, and I don't want to go into it here, it's just gonna be boring to people, but there are certain things you see in a chart, you go, oh, this person has a difficult relationship chart. 
part of the reason they're, they come into this life, whatever you believe about life and reincarnation, part of the reason they've come into this life is to deal with lessons of love. They're going to need to have lots of relationships that don't work out because they're going to have to learn certain things. And why? And then the client's like, why do I have to do this? Well, that's the mystery. I don't really have any... And, but the more they work on it, the more they grow, the more they learn lessons, the more they become more into it. So certain people have rough, certain people have very challenging job charts. They can never hold a job. And you sort, and you often do see this, and you do see this, but then certain types of personalities will work through things a little differently. And it's my job to kind of point, especially if a client comes back to me often, if they come back to me twice a year, and they've been coming to me for 10 years, it's my duty to point out certain things. You know, I might not say certain things in a first reading because I, you have to know how you're reading for a person. You have to know if the person you're reading for is a very sensitive type or if they can take it, if they can take a more direct type of approach. That's why my acting background, and now we're finally getting to kind of stuff that I thought I was gonna talk about. My acting background helps with this. If you see somebody who has a proponent, a lot of sensitive type of energy, like a lot of water in the chart, or and you can't, you can't just say to them certain things right to their face. They're gonna receive the energy and feel assaulted, and you want to get them to trust you. So you have to know who you're speaking to and how to speak. It's not about lying. It's not about lying. It's about knowing how to deliver the message so that they're going to hear it the way they need to hear it. You know, if I'm speaking to uh, of somebody with a lot of fire or they're Aries, I'm going to say, you know, you're really bossy and you hurt people's feelings a lot. You really have to know that's something about you. And generally the person will probably laugh and go, yeah, I know. But you can't say that to somebody else who's going to, you know, internalize it a little too much. Right. You have to know who you're speaking to. You have to know who you're speaking to. Um, so it all relates, the acting and the astrology. It How all does... relates, by being an actor, being on stage, because you have to, I, when, you, when you're talking about certain planets, you have to act out, I, I like to act out the planet. I like to, because people then see the visual and they go, yes, they, they get it. The visual along with the verbal. If it's, uh, and um, that's where my acting training comes in very well. So I want to, I have a question about being an opera singer. So I've heard you sing, um, you have performed a couple times um, in Provincetown. I think once was at the, at the, the Red Lobster, no, what, not Red Lobster, the oh, Lobster I, Pot. I, yes, <laughs> the, I, yes, I used to just get up and sing. <laughs> yeah, at the Lobster <laughs> Pot, not the Red Lobster, red, red, the Lobster Pot. But anyhow, um, I do have a question about that. It always, well, I, it's, I'm curious to see how that relates to the performance aspect of being an astrologer, but also it just seems like being able to sing like that must feel really good. What does it that does feel, feel like? Very... <laughs> when you're singing, um, when you're singing and it's working on all cylinders, uh, it's like, it's, and especially opera, because I used to sing opera a lot, um, and, and you'd go for certain high notes that were the climax of the phrase. Well, it was like having a climax. It was like having an orgasm. It was like the next best thing to orgasm and sex. It was like, oh my God, you'd feel this because your body was kind of shaking. 
and resonating. And then when you go for certain types of notes, it's like explosive and it, it explodes this way and explodes down through the root chakra. And you felt like having an orgasm and it, it just felt like the next best thing to sex. So uh, when it was working like that, but you had to do a lot of preparation for that and a lot of work and how, uh, when it didn't work, you would be depressed. But um, singing was beautiful. Singing is beautiful. It's fabulous. But um, there's a lot of stage fright that comes with all that too, which I found very nerve wracking as well. Um, but uh, that's why to be good at anything you do, whether it's opera singing, rock and roll singing and astrology, you have to do your homework, you have to practice. How does the opera singing relate to astrology? Um, the discipline. <laughs> the discipline of getting up and doing your scales every day and, and reading. So you do your scales every day, you look at where the planets are every day, what aspects are the planets making today, where you have to know where the planets are constantly moving. And as an opera singer, you have to wake up and you have to know where your voice is sitting. You have to do your scales. You have to make sure you're, you're, you know, you're, you're, uh, this is functioning right. You have to the everyday daily living the everyday daily living of living your art and living your life. If you're an accountant, every day you wake up and you go to the office and you crunch numbers. If you're an astrologer, every day you wake up and you have to read something about the astrology. You have to know where the planets are moving. You have to know what aspects are making. If you're an opera singer, every day you have to wake up. It has to be part of your daily grind. It has to be part of the daily motion. You have to do your scales. You have to take care of your voice. Uh, it's, it's that routine. To be, to be in any kind of creative field or any field, you have to do the mundane everyday shit in order to open up the creativity because it has, you have to have skills, you have to have techniques. So I would correlate all that to, to, uh, from opera singing to acting to astrology to anything you, you do. You know, my, my father's a baker. My father was a baker every single day. He went to that bakery and he mixed the bread and he mixed the dough. And, and then the creative part came out of producing the bread but you had to put the flour in, you had to put the water, you had to put the yeast, you had to put everything in that machine, you had to have the bakers do everything. But, but, but the creative part was then when it came out and you made it, right? But you had to put all, you had to do all that, have all the techniques and the ingredients. Um, does that answer your question? I never, I lose the form of the thread of the conversation sometimes. That was, an, that was an excellent answer. I'm very, I'm, that was excellent. Uh, but uh, that's, you know, uh, you know, there's a group, great deal of fear in life. You know, astrology is ruled by the, the planet Saturn has a lot to do with astrology because Saturn is about fear and you're on the, you're on the planet for 80 years, 90 years, and time is always ticking. And how are you going to get through the world and produce? And when you face your fears, they become your talents. If you overcome your fears, they become very, they, they become part of you and then you can create. Uh, if you don't face your fears, they become your limitations. So every single day of our life, we're facing our fears. And I remember as an opera singer, I used to throw up every time I had to sing. It was so fearful to get on stage and to have to be judged by that audience. And what if I didn't hit the... But if you don't face your fears, they do become your limitations and you don't grow and you don't achieve and you don't take on responsibility and you don't you're not productive and you don't contribute to society and um you know and you know that's i remember that being the scary part about singing especially uh it, it was being on the stage and and and, and every single every single time i get together with a client 
every, even before I did this interview, and I'm, and I'm up wired this way, I'm not saying every, but everybody has this to some extent, some people worse than others. I'm nervous. I feel, oh, what's Rick going to want to talk about? Should I write, should I write notes? Should I take notes? He said to keep it casual. I'm good. And, 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 you know, every time a client comes, I've done my homework. I've, I've studied their chart for an hour. I've, I've done all my technique, but I go, what am I going to talk about when this person comes? Because there's a mystery involved to it. You do your techniques, but what, are they going to think I'm a charlatan? Are they going to, are they going to listen to what I have to say? What do I have? And I'm, and I'm always nervous before every reading. And I think I'm always nervous, always nervous. I have to run to the bathroom. Even all, after all these years, I was, as a performer, I was like that. And I, and I realized if you're not a little nervous, every time, if you're not, you're not going to do a good job. You have to be a little, you can't be crippled. You can't be to the point of being crippled because you have to let the creative process take over, right? Once you do the left part of your brain and you do your homework and the analyzing and all that stuff, well, then you got to get on stage and perform or you got to get in front of the client and give them the information. And that's where the creative process, that's where the right yeah. brain starts yeah. to take over. Uh, the left brain does its job and then the right brain has to take over. But there's going to be a little fear around that because, you know, I, I was watching an interview with a, an actor, Robert Ryan, one of these great old Hollywood actors, and he was doing The Iceman Cometh, and Jeff Bridges was in the cast, and Robert Ryan was about 70, and he was about to die a year later, and Jeff Bridges was at the beginning of his career, and Robert Ryan got on set, and they were about to film a scene, and he was shaking, and Jeff Bridges says, are you nervous? And Robert Ryan said, yeah. And I'm always nervous before a take, first take. And if I wasn't, I'd be in a lot of trouble. Right. I think that there's, I think that there's a, um, I hear a lot of people are, talk about, you know, trying to eliminate nervousness and anxiety and fear. I've tried and that all for years, these, it doesn't work. And, and all of these things, I don't think you need to. I think, no, I think people, you have to let people, it wash over you a bit. Right. I think that it's it's not like successful people don't feel fear or aren't afraid it's sort of it's part of being a human and um you know i know that one thing you know not to like bring it back to me but i know that i do meditation and one of the things that i do specifically you know around meditation is it's not that i'm trying to feel better necessarily but what i'm trying to do is remove myself from all of these feelings so that i'm watching them not trying to control them or prevent them from happening because I think a level of fear and nervousness, I'm nervous before we started this conversation. That's a good thing. I don't want it to consume me, but um, you know, with meditation, I'm trying to feel all these things, good and bad. Um, but I'm sort of trying to look at them like I'm watching a drive-in movie and kind of see them um, and not let them consume me. But I think that all of those things that you mentioned that could be considered negative are just really part of being a healthy human. We can wrap up. So this is recording, like normally my, my um, Zoom meeting ends after 40 minutes. So I hope that this worked because it didn't end. It if it recording. doesn't, we can do it again. Uh, you, you made my day. I've, uh, you got my start off in a very good spot. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Uh, I should do more stuff like this because I don't even take my own advice sometimes. <laughs> I don't take my own advice a lot. All and, right. and this was a very creative process and it made my creative juices start flowing for the day. So I appreciate it. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. So uh, where can people learn more about uh, what you offer from an astrology standpoint? Oh, my, my website, uh, uh, josephadeo.com, J-O-S-E-P-H-A-D-D-E-O.com. 
I have my website there. I have a lot of articles there. My classes are posted there where I'm lecturing would be posted there. And so that's the easiest way to find me. Also on Facebook, uh, but I have two Facebook pages. Go to my professional page, which is Joseph Adeo Astrologer. On that Joseph Adeo Astrologer Facebook page, I blog um, a lot, a lot about the daily astrology and stuff like that. So you can, you can see, I love to write. So you can learn about, you can see my writing technique and how I write. And, you know, if you, if you enjoy that, you'll, you'll get an, a glimpse into the way my mind works and how astrology works. Great. This was awesome. Um, and you have a, have a wonderful vacation. My name is Ricky McGeckrin, and you have been listening to Eager to Know, the podcast. If you haven't already, please go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Eager to Know podcast. 